0: hey everybody welcome back to the barbell medicine youtube channel or podcast wherever you're catching this i'm dr jordan feigenbaum this is part two from our santa cruz training camp this is a question and answer session with uh, dr austin Baraki and myself hope you guys enjoy this 45 minutes of high quality information so sit tight and we'll catch you guys at the end
1: So the question was that she had a history of frozen shoulder, you said, five years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So frozen shoulder is possibly the most bizarre uh, musculoskeletal condition that exists. We have no earthly idea why or how frozen shoulder happens, yeah. why it takes so long to get better, how to treat it. We've tried all kinds of crazy shit to treat frozen shoulder, doesn't seem to help. Uh, We just know that most people over the course of the first anywhere from, you know, one to three years ultimately end up getting better as you did. So I am not going to be able to provide a very satisfying explanation as to why or how it happened or how it works because nobody on earth understands it. Uh, But happy to hear that you've gotten most of your range of motion back, that you can train, you can press, you can bench. I wouldn't search for things to be wrong. Mm I would just keep training and enjoy the fact that you recovered and you can keep using your shoulder. And, yeah, yeah, I probably wouldn't do anything about it. Yeah, you may find that it continues to improve, and one day you can get even more range of motion through training. You may not. I don't know. Does yeah.
0: shoulder seen
1: on like radiography. Nope. Mm-hmm. Clinical diagnosis. Yeah. After excluding things, you know,
0: radiographically. Sometimes. The question is about any new templates and new programming sort of uh, guidelines. Have we, had, have we found any trends that will affect how the new programs are distributed, written, et cetera? Uh, very broadly, not really. Um, mainly because going into when making the initial set of templates and like as they've been refined going along, it's that volume needs to be driven up over time progressively in a manner that's tolerable. And you know, outside of that, indiv- inter-individual differences in training are individual. And so people may respond to more or less average intensity, more or less exposure to singles, better or worse to certain variations. But on the whole, the, the biggest sort of thing that I have found uh, through an, analyzing this stuff is that when I ramp the volume up stepwise, Versus going from, like, periods of pretty low volume to just, here you go, blast. People do better with the gradual ramp. And that, I mean, that's what you would expect just based on what we know about, you know, the recovery response and stuff like that. But I have found that even when I am looking at a program, I go, wow, that volume is that's high. But people do just fine if you gradually got have gotten them there, and then they, they do better. Uh, the only new thing that that is really kind of, I've... I now believe uh, is that the lower end of the intensity range is that's useful, that are useful for driving strength is, you know, in, that's 70, 70%, maybe even a little lower, 67%, 70%, which had you asked me this five years ago, I would have said 75, 70, you know, closer to 80, but now I'm lower. And I program that as such. So before where I would be heavily reliant on, sets at RP 8, I'm totally fine with starting at 7, for instance, and doing four sets of 6 at RP 7. And people are like, well, it's only RP 7, man. I'm like, yeah, it's like 70%, 71%, you know? And they're like, but that is, is that enough? I'm like, yeah, dude, it'll be fine. So um, as far as special populations, that was kind of the last aspect. That's going to be the biggest troll template. It's going to be the women's template. It's just going to be the dude's template with a different name on it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, if anything, our expectation would be that a, that women who exhibit traditional, traditionally feminine traits, right? So we're talking more narrow shoulders, less lean body mass, wider hips, uh, less ability to recruit motor units uh, quickly, right? So they have lower vertical jumps. So the non-athletic female, but lower on the athletic spectrum, would require more training, more more training to get. Uh, a given outcome. A, a given improvement in strength. Or, so the women's template, for instance, is likely to have more volume at a slightly higher average intensity, but nothing, like, crazy. Interestingly, the old if we made an older person template, it would look the same, which is, uh, you know, interesting. How old is yeah, it's a great question. Well, so when it's, we were t- we were talking about this on it's our not podcast 35. No. No, it's the not. question
1: is how old is old. So Big man
0: or female. Right. So I had a uh, I have it on good authority, the person himself is a 26-year-old male who was on old man Texas method because that's what you do, you know. You're just not a young, you're not young anymore. You got to you know, recover or not train enough, you know? So that's the that's the risk. The Old is a biological thing. It's not a chronological thing. I mean, even defining what is elderly in the medical literature is a problem, and people go back and forth on this all the time, and they seem to have settled around 65 and say, yeah, we'll call this. If you're 66, you're old, and if you're 65, you're not. But this is more of a biological sort of thing. So the biological processes involved in aging that affect training outcomes specifically would be blood flow, right? As it relates to protein absorption in the GI tract, and blood supply to the muscle, and stuff like that. So, um, when does that happen? Well, it could happen at a young age for somebody with a bunch of vascular problems, or it could happen at old age, or it could never happen.
1: I think it's general, I think you can summarize our position, I think I said this to somebody recently, by saying that there are no special populations. Right. Because if everybody has a special population, then nobody's a special population. Yeah. And so... There is nothing inherent to somebody telling me I am this age or I am male or I'm female that specifically guides what I'm going to do. And that is specifically due to the broad, enormous range of inter individual variation in response, right? So, as an example, I'm going to brag on Brian, right? Who, can I say your age? You're what, 53? 53, 53. Started training a year and a half ago 14 months. 14 months ago started training he has gone through most of our templates he has smashed the hell out of our templates he did the 12 week press template barbomedicine.com in, le- leading into in. strength lifting nationals went and squatted 485 pressed 205 209 and pulled 465 so he, and he should within the next 6 months squat 500 press 225, pull over 500, right? So I can brag on him and say, look what this program does for you. That's what most people in fitness marketing land would say. This program took this 53-year-old guy to a 500-pound squat in under 18 months. Buy it, which would be very disingenuous of me and dishonest, right? But I can say that because I can say, hey, he is shockingly sensitive to training. Yes. Whereas I could pick out some other 53-year-old who may be in the room right now, I don't know, or you know, someone off the street who will respond nowhere even close to that. They'll train for 18 months to get to a 250 squat, if that. You know what I mean? And so the fact that they're 53 tells me nothing. Yeah, there's nothing unique. I can make an assumption that you're old and you're broken and you're not going to recover and you don't adapt and I can tell you these things and make you believe these things and that becomes your reality. Because you interpret every ache and pain that you feel as confirmation that I'm old and broken and can't adapt, or I can not do that shit and get you better outcomes, right? By addressing this whole other side of training, adaptation, you know, fatigue management, all the stuff that we talk about, by not making you feel like you are broken. Hey, man, you don't know. You never been. I care about this a little bit. You can never me. been old, right? so <laughs> you just don't know. Same yet. thing. Same thing applies to a female. Right? can I have a female say, oh, you're not really going to adapt, sorry. <laughs> and then I take my wife and I coach her and she pulls 405 in under 18 months of training. Yeah. That's way faster progress than I got. So am I more of a female than she is from an adaptability standpoint? From a training, maybe. She must be using Yes. The, yes. The, she used the template. Because right, right, I did not deadlift 405 that soon after I started training. So the fact that she's female means nothing when it comes to training. You have to observe the response and adjust accordingly. Yeah, that's like
0: the, you know, we say the thing tongue-in-cheek. It just doesn't matter if you're female, if you're old, whatever. None of that tells us enough information to to, to make adjustments in training without looking at empirical evidence from you. Mm -hmm. The empirical evidence from another group of people who do not represent you doesn't change what we do. Yeah. I have every
1: expectation that you're going to, you know, you'll go squat 500 until proven otherwise, you know, so... And, and, and I think that's where, you know, we talk about, you know, people are like, well, what can I expect from this program? And I'm like, yeah, you can I ex- hope it works for you. But if you come back and you tell me I did it and I confirm that you did it quote unquote right and you didn't really respond or you got weaker. And I'm like, well, you know, you're on that end of the spectrum. Yeah. If we did a randomized trial, right, if we did a randomized trial of our templates or something like that. We take a huge cohort of the population. We could get a great idea of what the average response to the program is. But if you take individual data points, individual subject data points, and say starting strength, ending strength. <laughs>
0: that's, that's our next book. It's an ending strength. You show
1: where they started and where they ended up. You're going to have lines going up. You're going to have lines going down. And then you're going to see the average, yeah, which is what you can report. But it's not useful when it comes to prescribing programming to the individual. You do the, the novice LP, the program that works every time.
0: Yeah, come on. Don't
1: do it with the eyes. Right? And you put a thousand people on the program and you run it out to the end and you get the starting data points and the ending data points. You're going to have people who got way stronger. You're going to have people that didn't really respond. Right? And you're going to have your average response. It's, there is, it's the way every single intervention that you can do to a person works. You have a thousand people blood pressure medicine. Spectrum of response and blood pressure lowering. Right? Another, diabetic medicine, spectrum of response in blood sugar lowering. Just too much variability.
0: Are you saying that my training sensitivity idea is elegant? Yes.
1: Oh, man. Broadly applicable. Oh,
0: man. Yeah, uh, the only last thing I'll say on this. So from our group programming, we have uh, just a little over 500 different data points from the various months and and people, Um, and thus far less than 10% of all people that we've we've come across, uh, less than 10% are the folks who I would call non-responders to our initial level of management, meaning that that across the board they have not PR'd within the first month, okay? So that being said, we have a 90% approximately success rate of people who will add weight to their our PR within the first month, which is a good pretty good percentage rate. That doesn't mean that they're PR'ing at the most optimal, sort of, you know, maximum rate that they could, but... I'm okay batting 900, you know, off the bat, which mean which tells me that we're on the right track as far as our line of thinking goes to program management. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the question is how important is protein variety under the assumption that you're getting all of your a high amount of protein in? Uh, no one knows. Uh, I can't tell you that any data that any any data is suggesting that people eat a higher variety of high-quality protein do better than those who eat no variety of high-quality protein. I can tell you that, on average, people with the highest amount of essential amino acid intake per day tend to have the highest amount of lean body mass. But as far as does the variety matter? mm -mm. My only caveat with recommending whey for like, eat this is it, only protein source is that some folks will, uh, uh, with whey protein concentrate in in particular, have an abnormal response cholesterol-wise. Yeah, well, my my my, uh, I have no concerns with someone eating nearly the same thing on a daily basis, provided that they're healthy based on any metric that we can track, which would be weight, waist, body composition. Is uh, a lipid panel normal? They don't have any problems with uh, their blood sugar. Uh, all that stuff being equal, I don't care. The question is, should you do prehab, and why do people do it? Austin, I will ask you the first part: Should you do Prehab.
1: Uh, No. No. Good. Can I explain why? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) So when you're gonna do the prehab exercises under the guise that they are fixing some structural thing that is then predisposing you to injury, that does not appear to be a significant risk here for injury. So the ways to reduce the risk of injury, because we can't prevent them, we can reduce the risk of them, is manage training fatigue, i.e. reducing or managing the session RPE. So not all of your sessions are at 10, at 10, at 10, right? And paying attention to how much training you're doing so that we don't do something stupid with your acute on chronic workload ratio. That's how you reduce the risk for injuries. (sighs) So, and then uh, just strengthening the athlete, general strength, uh, is another thing that we can do to reduce the risk for injuries. (coughs) So, to the extent that prehab things work, it works by way of making you stronger. If it's not making you stronger, then it's a waste of time which i would argue that most of the exercises that are advertised as prehab exercises are wastes of time when it comes to getting you stronger anyway compared to more useful ways of getting somebody strong. Yep. Uh so as far as why do people do them? They
0: are fashionable. Right? I mean, you're and you have a big social learning aspect to this, right? People who you hold in high regard, high esteem, you value what they have to say do this stuff, or at least say they do it on social media so they can make that extra $200 a month. It seems worth selling their soul. Um, There's no good reason otherwise than somebody told you to do it who you hold in high regard. And it's bullshit. It's harmful, right? Because if you don't do it, and this person told you that you you got to do it if you want to, you know, not get injured, well, what do they just do to you? They just SIBO'd you. Are they your friend? Why don't you just give them the money directly to not send you the message, right? Let's start a GoFundMe so that these kids don't have to sell jigsaw massagers on Instagram.
1: Because the default message coming from these people is that you are broken. You're broken. Even before you start training, you have to fix these things. You need to be fixed. Right. Whereas, and you need to pay me to get fixed. Whereas you look at the actual data on this stuff, pain, injury, stuff like that. And there's so much of this idea of resilience, self-efficacy, being able to take care of yourself, autonomy, yeah, and training, and stuff true. like that. That we're we're here telling you, you're good, man. You're fine, you're great shape. Let's get stronger. Go to town. Yeah. So we're building you up. Yeah, we're your friends. <laughs> we're your friends. So yes.
0: Unless you eat grains, in which case,
1: not our friends. <laughs>
0: Uh, The question is: Is there a minimum age before, or that uh, that someone should be before that you introduce weight training? Uh, No, not necessarily. The answer is: It depends on again biology, right? So we use Tanner stages. That's, but that's not evidence based. That's based in like Russian sports science and uh, other China's sports science, based on what they did with their athletic universities and selecting their athletes. So what they would do is once you were a certain Tanner stage, which is basically a stage of development that occurs. There's five of them. Once you're a certain Tanner stage, you are able to participate in sports, right? As far as us, what do we know about the risks of weight training in kids, children? Low. low. The biggest risk is dropping a dumbbell or a weight on your foot. Seriously, the injury rate for resistance training is remarkably low. Like, almost so low that you're like, did anybody really study this? Or they just guessed. Like, even for competitive weightlifting. Uh, So when should you start, or when is it okay for somebody's kid to start lifting weights? Any age is fine as long as they're mature enough in the weight room such that there's a lower risk of them dropping a dumbbell or a weight on their own foot or somebody else's foot. because That would be bad. But I don't have any minimum, and I don't have any minimum, like, stage of development. I just think that if a kid wants to train or, you know, start lifting weights, that's fine. I'm under no belief that they have a higher risk of injury than somebody who's older. I'm under no, uh, I have no evidence to suggest that it's going to stunt their growth. I have no evidence to suggest it's going to lead to bad outcomes down the line other than participation in a wide variety of sports and different movement patterns and different skills at a young age is likely to set them up for success in
1: athletics and other recreational pursuits that are physical in nature. And there is evidence that strength training reduces their injury risk when it comes to playing those sports. Yeah, just over, yeah overall, in general.
0: Yep. So how young is too young? It depends on the maturity of the kid. The, yeah, maturity of the kid. Yeah, maybe I should ask. Ask. So the, que-
1: the question had to do with our up-to-date article, and if we've seen any data, to you know, know about maybe access data, if it's been, how much it has been read or anything like that. Yeah, we don't know. They, they, I'm sure they have like view data or something. I don't know how much that reflects it being read and internalized. But. How many
0: hits are we getting? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So. I don't know. I'll ask John. Okay. Yeah, we'll ask. That's good. That's good. Cool. Yeah. So Thanks, that, the idea is that we are probably going to end up taking that stuff and then expanding it out. Book. Barbell medicine book. Basically, because it hasn't been addressed. You know, the topics in that article had to do with resistance training in this condition, this condition, this condition, this condition. And then, you know, we're really the, seemingly become the people that people go to when they're like, hey, I have this condition. Can I train? Yeah. To which okay. the answer is usually yes. But, to, to, what's the, okay, hold we need on. To,
0: What's the weirdest thing that somebody's asked you if they can train with? I'm not good at these questions, man. Arnold Ki- Arnold Chiari. Oh yeah, well that that's was a hard one. Yeah, I was like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea. Arnold Chiari is uh, this brainstem malformation. Yeah, like they're lacking, <laughs> so, and there's a risk of them herniating their brain through the <laughs> opening by which the brain becomes a spinal cord. Yeah. And this guy was like, "Yeah, can my sister train?" And I was like.
1: Mm-hmm. yes, I have nothing to base this on. So that's, that's the point. I hope so.
0: I mean, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, universally, yes. If you have ever thought about playing, like, recreational soccer or, like, adult league, like, beer league kickball, then you're at an infinitely higher risk of injury. Yes. Like, the odds of you getting injured from while training – provided that you don't enter training under, you know, guidance that you should max out every set all the time, grind it out, take it to the limit, otherwise you're a bad person. <laughs> Odds are you'll probably be fine. But should you enter into that belief system, well, things might be a little different. Although it's still relatively low, apparently. <laughs> Uh, for sure, of course not. Every nobody, nobody skips on the. Excuse me, can I eat more proteins <laughs> that have less carbs? Uh, so uh, the question is, if you are, have under eaten throughout the day and you are going to make it up at one more meal, is there any? Should you eat the same amount of protein that you've been prescribed, or should you eat less protein uh, and ramp up the other macros while keeping in mind that you are going to hit enough to generate a muscle protein synthesis response? My default answer is just. Hit the macros. And the reason why is that it'd be very difficult for me to tell you that there would be a significant difference in eating less protein but more carbs and fat or vice versa. It's just not its not going to matter. In fact, I'd make the argument that the most important thing is the calories first and foremost. And then as a secondary concern would be, well, how are those divvied up? But since we're talking about a large meal that ultimately is going to bring you to your calorie goal, caloric goal, that I'm not worried about this meal being like devoid of protein or ability to generate a muscle protein synthesis response. A meal that's high enough in calories, unless it's pure, pure fat, is likely to generate a muscle protein synthesis response, even in the absence of protein, uh, provided you're not completely fasted, which you're not, because you've eaten earlier today, so. My response in an acute setting would be, just, you know, hit the macros. If you're off by, you know, 20 grams less of protein and you add that to your carbs and the calories work out the same, I'm fine with it, you know, but, for one day, one meal, I don't think it matters enough to worry about outside of calories. Makes sense? Just in the same way, I don't think that matters if you eat three times a day or five times a day for muscle protein synthesis concerns. I think the more important thing is do you hit your calorie goal on average each day over the course of a week or two weeks. Um, so people are like, well, five, five times a day is better because it's more. I'm like, I mean, okay. We don't really Prove have it.
1: the evidence for that.
0: Yeah, we don't have, we don't have evidence that whey protein works. I mean, truthfully, if you really want to, like, like if you want to hold everything to the same standard that people want to, you know, uh, that pe- like people want to claim on certain, you know, science, like interventions, there's no long-term data suggesting that whey protein, you know, increases people's lean body mass when they resistance train because no one's ever studied that long-term. I mean, you haven't, you know. No one said, yeah, let's do it for five years. We have people who lift weights regularly and people who, you know, uh, take protein and other people who don't. We don't have any data showing that they have more lean body mass or they got stronger in that amount of time frame. We have it at three months. But be like, yeah, you could easily say, well, that's three months. What does it matter? I'm like, yeah, that's fair. That means I do think that whey protein can be useful in certain cases. So I just want to know what you're going to eat tonight. I don't know. Yeah it be epic. epic. Same. It out. Yeah, right. Right, right, right. All right. All uh, right. You would go to Teresa. I have seen, okay, so the question is uh, thoughts on ketogenic diet and strength training? (laughs) I have seen people who who have previously been very strong continue to be relatively strong whilst on a ketogenic diet. There are a handful of trials assessing athletic performance uh, with a ketogenic diet. One was in gymnasts, one was in Taekwondo players? I don't know. (laughs) Taekwondo people. And they basically this is under the uh the premise that they need to lose weight to make weight for a thing. Or in the gymnast it was like they lost a little weight and could do the same amount of pull ups so they didn't get any weaker. I haven't seen any anecdotally, the general response to people when they train and don't and, and eat a ketogenic diet is they don't do as well as they otherwise would. And I say that based on the repeated sort of uh, a question like, hey, I've been on a ketogenic diet, I'm not really losing that much weight, I'm eating 200 grams of fat per day, uh, also my squat is stuck at, you know, 190 pounds, I'm a 240 pound guy, what do you recommend I do? Well, all right, you haven't been in a calorie deficit, but you've, failed, you've underperformed on the squat relative to our normative data. Normal data says that on a starting strength LP, you should end up in a mid to upper 200 pound squat for three sets of five. So you're underperformed, and it hasn't helped you lose, lose any weight, and it's put you at risk for a lipid problem. People who are already strong, people who are using other things may do fine on a ketogenic diet. You can use it short-term for weight loss if you need to, and that makes you, helps you comply. But I do not think that there are any unique health benefits to the ketogenic diet outside of maybe diabetics who otherwise can't comply with the diet. I don't think that it's uniquely useful for sporting applications evidence to suggest that there is is woefully lacking and i think that there are significant risks with doing the ketogenic diet and if it worked as well as all the keto you know pro keto folks were saying then we would see better results with it when it's tested but it's just like everything else people are probably not going to do very well with it some people
1: thrive on it but yeah, the other thing is, your question was, have you ever seen anybody on keto get strong? To which I would first ask, what is strong? Right? So where's our cutoff? You know, have I seen somebody on keto get a 225 squat? Sure. I wouldn't consider that to be very strong. 315, 405, where, when do we say that they've gotten strong on the diet? That's one weird kind of thing, right? One weird The other thing is that strength adaptations, I hope you will agree at this point, is highly complex, multifactorial, and... Say, and and so to, to pick out the diet as your isolated variable and expect that to, you know, be reflected in these, like, kind of profound differences in adaptation, it's going to be confounded by a bunch of other shit, right? So you could have somebody who is highly training sensitive, super freak athlete. You put him on a keto diet. Is he going to get strong? Could probably. Be Would he get stronger if he wasn't? Also probably, right? Or you could have somebody who is, you know, really, really horribly training resistant. Are they going to do well on a keto diet? Probably not. They probably wouldn't have done well on any they other thing. They probably night. wouldn't have done well anyway, right? So that's yeah. the thing, is first what is strong, and then it's confounded by too many other things anyway. Yeah. So I think that if you're trying to
0: give yourself every advantage during training, then we're going to follow our best practices, which are a relatively high protein diet. You're going to have carbohydrates around your workout time. You may use certain supplements that have some proven benefit. Uh, you're going to train using a progressively overloaded fashion. You're not going to try to game the system and do too many weird things that are like haven't substantiated themselves over time. And I think ketogenic kind of falls into that. Yeah. The question is, to my knowledge, uh, can I add enough lean body mass where I'll actually be able to eat more calories than I am now whilst losing weight? Uh, probably not. because So you have a few things working against you. And I, I don't mean to be that guy, but I'll be that guy today. Uh, losing weight means that at whatever body weight you are in the future, you're likely to have a lower TDEE, so total daily energy expenditure or, and or basic metabolic rate, than somebody who didn't have to lose weight but was your same height and body weight. Basically, you're going to be a few hundred calories lower than them because, because you had to go from an, you know, a higher body weight to a lower body weight. So you're going to be 300, 400 calories less than them just to maintain your weight. If you gain a bunch of muscle mass then your body weight's going to be higher. And so, you, will you be eating more calories than you were to get up to that body weight the first time? Maybe if you surpass that that weight. You know, if you were 220 when you started, or 230 when you started, and then you lost a bunch of weight, got down to 200, and then <coughs> regained a ton of muscle mass, and now you're 240, you'd probably be eating more calories. But the odds of you... Going down to 200 then gaining 40 pounds of lean body mass, well, correct. Chemistry. A lot of chemistry would be involved there. So <laughs> that seems unlikely. Uh, if you build a little bit more muscle mass, you might close that gap down. And then also just the more you train, uh, on average, you, you'll have a little more extra wiggle room with, with your activity level, provided that represents a significant portion of your day that makes sense. No, so, you it's it's unlikely that you'll be able to eat significantly more than you are now uh, without tr- starting to gain a little bit of weight unless your activity <laughs> also goes up. Yeah. Until until you if you have the same amount of muscle mass as me, your your calories are going to be up. Yeah. So, I would say that, you know, I mean get if jacked, you get jacked, <laughs> but that may require periods of time where you're heavier, you know. Yeah. So, let's let's get let's get, you know, Abs for the summer first, and then we, well, and then reassess, you know. Um, but the important part is to, is, is to kind of figure out what, it, what you need for maintenance and be able to, main, you know, comply with that within a given period of time, and then you can adjust. So most folks will be like, ah, I don't want to eat this little, and then they just, you know, permabulk, and then you end up, the waist is 40 inches, and you're like, look, man. The well, thing
1: to- that I point out is the article that I wrote for the site a month or two ago on metabolism. Which medicine was
0: that? Uh, what? Which medicine was that? And Cap- uh,
1: pagliflozin. Yeah, it was like, I know there's a flozin in there. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, so it was just a study of, to summarize, like a, like a placebo-controlled weight loss study using a medicine that will result in weight loss kind of without really the patient having to decrease their usual intake because it makes you pee out sugar. So you pee out energy, you lose weight, and they compared it to a placebo. And they noted that as, the time, as time went on, their weight plateaued even though they were still peeing out the same amount of sugar. So they should have still been in an energy deficit. Then they measured their intake, and their intake rose to match the energy deficit because of neurological mechanisms for appetite. So people ended up naturally increasing their intake to match the extra energy expenditure so their weight plateaued instead of continuing to go down linearly, as you would expect. And they, they ended the article with a quote that I really liked having to do with how, basically, uh, like in order to, main, to to achieve kind of like long-term weight loss success, yes. people have to... Uh, use heroic measures basically (laughs) to be able to maintain that calorie deficit in the face of neurological physiological mechanisms that are fighting you to make you increase your intake right because your body perceives it as why are you wasting weight bro right and so the heroic mechanisms that are required to maintain a calorie deficit is why you know we see people who lose weight and they gain it back it's hard to do that's why you know, we prescribe sometimes like weight loss type medications to reduce the RPE of dieting to make it not yeah. as hard because it works on the brain to reduce appetite cravings, things like that. So, yeah. You listen to the podcast with uh, Nadolsky?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the second one and the third one, I think were really helpful. But anyway. Yeah. Let's, we'll lose the fat now. Get jacked. Strong AF.
1: Uh, Do you want to summarize the question? So the question is, um, do we as physicians foresee or have concerns about possible health implications of people in the modern physical culture scene, gaining a bunch of body weight, body mass, using the modern food supply and all its potential problems with pesticides, et cetera, things people are concerned about?
0: So my answer is no, not really, as far as from your the question that you asked about was about the food supply. I have no concerns over GMOs because we've been genetically modifying things since agricultural the start of agriculture. I mean, heirloom seeds are pretty rare. I'm not concerned with GMOs and, and things that are generally regarded as safe per fairly rigorous testing. I'm more concerned with the pharmaceutical arms race that is strength sports or sports in general Mainly because it happens under uh, a veil uh, uh, in a, uh, you know in the alleyways and in the <laughs> in the locker room rather without physician supervision, so you have athletes with high incentives to perform at supernatural levels right that are on their own without any sort of education on what should you be checking what should you be taking and they're going to do it anyway uh, and we just call that cheating, even though all sports are unfair. I think I'm more concerned with people with, uh, with the drug culture than than GMOs or uh, protein supplements or anything like that. I'm more concerned with people using multiple pharmaceutical compounds to gain a performance advantage, which has happened since the beginning of time with respect to sport. You know, first it was alcohol, then it was stretch, you know, nine, and then it was, you know, uh, a thyroid Any, hormone. Anything we could get our hands on. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's this possible. thing might work? Cool, let's do a ton of it. <laughs> so I'm more concerned with that because what you see, like, as the record, particularly in strength sports, right, records continue to fall, and these are larger than life. And I'm less concerned with the food supply than I am the pharmaceutical chemistry it take, took to get there. And I think that needs to be addressed via education and the sort of open-door policy rather than well, we'll just test 10% of our competitive population, bust a few people, and people stop using. As the incentives continue to go up, I think you're going to see more of that, and you'll see more people hurt themselves. But I'm, And then the second thing I'm more concerned about than lifters, for instance, or strength athletes gaining weight via our food supplies, obesity.
1: Yeah, that was kind of what I was going to get at. Like, I mean, that's
0: the biggest problem, and, and the source of obesity to me has less to do with our food supply than the psychological
1: psychosocial yeah environment. Yeah. You say environment same time? Yeah. Yeah, my biggest concerns are kind of the the pandemics that we have now, arguably being obesity and at the other end of the spectrum, frailty, right? So those those are things that we know we can deal with pretty effectively through at least the training and dietary nutrition measures that we recommend. And so yeah, so if I can if I can because we know we have very compelling evidence on the harms right of obesity very compelling evidence on the harms of frailty sarcopenia osteosarcopenia things like that as folks get older it's like we have these interventions that we can do and i can see kind of the the concern of like well are you creating one problem by by solving another Uh, but if we i mean there is not a complete absence of data on the things that you mentioned like the concerns about gmo and stuff like that and so based on the evidence we have now those things are not a huge concern for you know general population consumption or you know aspartame or something like that being a huge wow. <laughs> problem <laughs> Tom is a big fan of aspartame right <laughs> well, we, we, um, yeah. but but we have these we have evidence on the interventions we can do to solve today's you know epidemics of you know these major major health problems so yeah
0: i think there are too many examples in history of us being cautious like we're like oh we're just being cautious about stuff and like we're taking mercury, this trace mercury out of vaccines, which ultimately killed a bunch of people who could no longer get the hepatitis vaccine and subsequent with kids and subsequently got liver cancer and died. Or we stopped using DDT and then a bunch of millions of people died from malaria. Like, even though DDT could have been has been shown to be safe. So but we get these general caution, like, yeah, I feel bad about this, you know, and that's championed by somebody who's maybe not necessarily super steeped in the research, and then we make bad decisions based on it. So, the all... Well, well, animal and health, and the animal concerns from, what's it, Rachel, uh... uh Carson, yes. Yes, and then potential implicate our, our kids and our animals, and yeah, well, turns out a million people, you know, millions of people then subsequently died from malaria, but, eh, yeah, it's fine, we got, you know. Should have thought about this. So I, I, I think it's. I don't want to be overly cautious about things that may lead to future harm. And my main concerns right now with respect to our diet or the culture that we're in is the Pandora's box that is PED use in sport, and nobody's doing anything about it. That's being that's helpful right now, in my opinion. And then obesity. So. And when I say that nobody's doing anything helpful about it, is that we're just, yeah, we're just going to test it and say it's bad. It's like, yeah, well, every, every year, more and more people are using this stuff, and more and more people are going to potentially hurting themselves with this stuff, and what are you doing about it? Because you're, you're, the, the uh, uh,
1: cost of getting caught is not high enough, obviously. You see the lengths that the Russians went to in Icarus, right? <laughs> That's all you need to see. People are going to find a way to make this shit happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because that is the norm
1: now. And well, you don't get a lifetime ban for popping positive. That's true. And maybe you should. Or Ilya, maybe you should. Ilya twenty twenty, bro. Or maybe you should legalize it. He's gonna he's gonna clean and jerk two fifty.
0: Yeah, Ilya Ilian as a vegan <laughs> is gonna clean and jerk two hundred fifty kilos <laughs> in the hundred five kilo weight class or hundred six, whatever it is now, after popping positive for every Olympics that he's been in. <laughs> Totally. I hope he wins.
1: Yeah. It'll be fun to watch. All
0: right. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you guys want to learn how to submit your own questions or submit a form check for us for our YouTube vlogs, you can check out the description below. Subscribe for all the latest content. Hit like if you dug the video. Share it with your friends. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks.